0: sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. My goal for the Palestinian people would be to live in peace, to live in prosperity, to have the dignity of a state, to have freedom, and they can achieve it any morning they are prepared to say Israel has a right to exist, and we recognize that we're going to live side by side, but the political leadership would never tolerate that.
1: The Democrats are not searching for the truth. The Democrats are are searching to derail, delay, destroy, win the Senate back, and then stop this from happening. I mean, that's what they're seeking.
2: We owe it to the American people to underscore that you're innocent until proven guilty. It's the Senate that's on trial here, Mr. President. What kind of image will we convey to the public?
0: And now, Stacey Washington.
3: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Woo! The press conferences are coming hot and heavy. The Democrats, the Republicans, everybody's got something to say. Apparently, investigation number seven has yielded no corroboration to the sexual assault allegations. And I say that as someone who I certainly hoped for this result, but there was no guarantee. And so they went out and they did exactly what they were asked. The FBI did. The House Judiciary Committee, which is controlled by the Republican Conference, Senator Chuck Grassley and the White House all said, you know what, Democrats? Sure. okay. you need a a seventh supplemental background investigation executed by the FBI. We can do it for you. Let's get her done. And so they did. And guess what? They found nothing. So I want you to just walk with me through this process today here on the show. We're going to dig into this. We're going to have Kimberly Leonard senior health policy reporter from the Washington Examiner. She's going to join us to talk about how healthcare voters might be driving election results in two states, Missouri and Nevada. And then we are also going to be talking about some other cool stuff. Now, I want to give you guys uh, the uh, just we have a small segment of our audience that watches or consumes the show online social media. I'm locked out of my YouTube account so I can stream to it, but I can't make any adjustments to it, which is why we've had the same title for the YouTube program um, for the past Almost three weeks, the same title, because YouTube pre-populates the title when you live stream. And then so we we have access to stream, but we can't adjust it. I can't go in like I usually do in the first few minutes of the show and update the title and who the guest is. So I'm sorry about that. But, of course, online censorship of conservatives is cause du jour. It's what the liberals are all about. Anything they can do to tamp down on the truth getting out, that's what they're going to do. And that's what's happening. So. I have, of course, submitted a couple of help requests through the online system at YouTube to try to get some assistance, but I have not heard back. And I'm saying like I did that almost a week ago. Haven't heard back. Of course, there are, what, billions of users? So maybe they just don't have time to deal with my small requests. I don't have millions of people following me on YouTube, and they already demonetized me earlier uh, when they demonetized most other conservatives. They hit me for some arbitrary reason, so... You know, what have you. But I'm giving that update so that people who are noticing that it's the same old, same old. I can't comment. I can't change the title of the show. So there it is. Um, so the rest of the program here, we're going to obviously we're jump into our daily confession. We're going to have calls in the third segment and we're going to talk about um, Kavanaugh. We can't help it. We're going to talk about that. But I have some other news for you as well. Um Of course, we have discussed before, but there's a fantastic piece out. The fight over Kavanaugh proves the Supreme Court has become too powerful by Kim Holmes. Um, That's really important for us to get into. And another op-ed, for once, I'm grateful for Trump. I couldn't believe this piece in the New York Times. So we're going to go over that as well. Um, And then ex-Democratic staff were charged with posting senators' private info. So remember the doxing from last week? Last week. Um, as the Senate was listening to the testimony, the supplemental testimony from Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, towards the end of the hearing, three senators had their personal information posted online. And, and just in case you're wondering what's going on or maybe you're you've not seen much of it on the mainstream news channels. These senators have actually been attacked at their homes. People are banging on their doors. I mean, I can't tell you how wrong it is for them to have to go through this, but they live in D.C. and Virginia where they don't have the same gun rights as we do here in the Midwest. They don't have the same, uh, you know, you, if you live on a private street and someone's standing on your private street trying to launch a protest, at least here in Missouri, private street means they're standing on your own private property. Stand your ground, baby. It's, it, it then becomes... Are they threatening you? It, it's a much more serious proposition, which is why it's so important for us to remember and, and, you know, have these protections enshrined in law. That is why we have those protections, because people are crazy. People are going to people. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're, Cory Booker called out for them to get in people's faces. And Dr. Rand Paul's wife has written an open letter to Cory Booker to ask him, why? Why would you call for violence against elected officials? She's seen some of the most horrible things for her husband. His, his, their entire lives have been changed by the health challenges he's experienced since his neighbor attacked him and broke six of his ribs, pneumonia, all kinds of things going on with them. And it's not reported. Now, if he was a Democrat, oh, we'd hear the sob story with the music and the pre-produced packages all day long. But since he's a Republican, his broken ribs don't matter. So first, let's do our daily confession. No matter how bad the news is, no matter what it is that's going on in, in this realm, in this world, we have a father sitting on the throne who is always in control. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to quake. We don't have to be woken up in the middle of the night or have insomnia. None of those things have to plague us because we serve a God who will provide. So today's confession, daily confession is Romans eight seventeen. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. And that is specifically speaking to the suffering that we see the Kavanaugh family going through and numerous other families who've been wrongly accused. Let's, let's, let's be real here, right? Are there not other families out there who don't have the fame and infamy of the Kavanaugh family who are currently fighting false allegations or fighting a court case where they're innocent and they're waiting on deliverance from that? We can go to the word and we can see that God has provided for these circumstances. We suffer as co-heirs with Christ, but our suffering is not in vain. Our tears are never wasted. Our sorrow is never unseen by God. And he is always waiting for an opportunity to show himself strong in us. And he will do it. He doesn't just wait on that opportunity. When that opportunity arises, he moves on our behalf as he is moving on behalf of the Kavanaugh family, as he will move on behalf of you and me, because you don't have to be a Supreme Court justice nominee for God to be deeply and intimately concerned with how your life is going. So be encouraged. Everybody in the audience who's going through something, it is just as important as what's going on with the Kavanaugh family, especially to you, probably more important, and it's important to God. So rely on him in prayer and know that his word contains the answers for every such instance that we might be going through, and we can rely on that to lift our spirits, lift our heads, and to keep us moving, to keep us strong enough to go forward. So um, I want to give a special shout out to friends uh, here in Missouri, I had a sweet little meeting this morning with two ladies who, they actually have been on Air Force One and they've spent time with the president. Um, Diane Neff and Annette Reed, they gave me this wonderful gift today for helping them out with um, some some events that they had here locally. And I just wanted to give them a shout out here on the show and say thanks so much for the friendship and for the coffee this morning and the gift and for the opportunity to work with them here uh, in Missouri as as we get to do. So, now... Let's go to this audio that I have. Martha McSally. Whoa, pretty awesome. She was being interviewed and she had a few things to say. Uh, I want you to listen to it. She's going to tell you how she plans to vote on the Kavanaugh issue. It's number
1: three. We also need a fair process, right? We also need fairness where individuals can't just have one person without any cooperation uh, uh, impact such an important decision. And so the Judiciary Committee has been trying to uh, work through that, which I think uh, the Republicans on there, the leadership, did as good a job as they could. I'm very frustrated about uh, the Democrats and how they really dealt with Dr. Ford. I think they, sh- the fact that she appeared to not even know, they offered to come out to California to meet with her, that it could have happened in private, uh, is I think, uh, is a travesty, quite frankly. So we are where we are. Uh, there is there is no other corroboration to her story. Um, we have the, you know, the the life and the experiences and the six FBI background checks and, a, you know, a supplemental is going on Right now, and uh, you know, my heart breaks for Judge Kavanaugh and his family and what they've been through. And look, there is a reality: there are people out there, to include many of the Democrats, that just want to destroy this guy, that want uh, him to go down. Uh, They want to win the Senate back over, and they want to stop uh, a judge of his caliber uh, of any like, no matter who it is, could be your family member, right, Mm -hmm. to be treated like this. So this is this process, uh, I think, has been awful. Uh, And at this point, you know, based on what I know, unless there's some new revelations in the in the FBI investigation I would vote for for Brett Kavanaugh
3: so breaking news um Heidi Heitkamp is a no now I've been watching her race pretty it's it's been pretty interesting because Heidi Heitkamp is actually um she's she's not doing well in the polling anyway um apparently um mm, 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 mm. Apparently, Heidi Heitkamp, and I just got this in my email, someone who's blogging on this, it's a Say Anything blog if you're interested in politics that are going on uh, in Heidi Heitkamp's district. uh, She she is saying she's not going to vote for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee. And she's one of the Democrats who is in a hotly contested race where voters are looking to see if she's going to go with the president or against him. And Many, many of these Democrats who are in the the swing districts, they have the opportunity to show voters, look, I can be I can go easy on on some issues. I can moderate on some issues. I may be a Democrat, but I can recognize my electorate went by double digits for Trump as it is here in the state of Missouri. Um, we had over 18 points over and above what was needed to give our Electoral College votes to uh, Donald Trump. I mean, it was just a massive sweep Republicans coming into office. And so you would think that Claire McCaskill would find that, you know, uh, instructive. Heidi Heitkamp has not. And her polls are 10 points behind her competitor. Uh, her brother, Joel Heitkamp, or I'm not sure if he has the same last name, Joel was on MSNBC, and his quote is, she may lose, but in the morning when she's brushing her teeth, she needs to like the person she sees. It's not about liking yourself. It's about you're elected. Um, The people sent you there to do a job. It's representation. It's complex. You know, there are times when your electorate might want you to do something, but you feel it's immoral, and so you need to vote against what the electorate is telling you to do, and then you can go home with your head held high, and I think that's what she's saying here. But this witch hunt of... Uh, Judge Kavanaugh does not exactly comport with moral viewpoints. It's not a moral issue with him. There are no corroborating uh, evidence is that that there's no corroborating evidence that supports not voting for him based on these sexual assault allegations. Um, so anyway, she obviously doesn't want to be there. She's pulling 10 points behind her competitor. Interesting. So that's breaking. Um, and then, of course, I want to give you the information on this guy who doxed the senators um, last week. So you've got this ex-Democratic staffer. He's since been fired, by the way. U.S. Capitol Police on Wednesday arrested a 27-year-old man for posting addresses and private information of senators, according to the police department. His name's Jackson A. Costco. And he was working as an intern in the office of Sheila Jackson Lee. Hearst Chief of Staff Glenn Rushing says he's been fired and that they're cooperating with law enforcement. He graduated from the George Washington University in 2014 and previously worked for Democratic Senators Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire and Barbara Boxer of California, who has since retired. Costco most recently worked for Hassan as a legislative correspondent slash systems administrator. He left Hassan's office in May. He doxed Senator Mike Lee of Utah, Orrin Hatch of Utah, or... Yeah, Orrin Hatch of Utah and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, putting their addresses, phone numbers and email addresses online. If you couple that behavior with the fact that Cory Booker in June called for uh, protesters to get in the face of these senators to make them feel the pain and and then think about a year and a couple of months ago, we had our senators who were Republicans shot down on a baseball field by a Bernie Sanders supporter. Again, I ask you when you're in church on Sunday with your hands up in the air and you think you're praising God but you're supporting this kind of murderous behavior during the week. I'm, I'm sorry what was that? You're emailing me about what now? You're saying what to me about what? You can't have the moral high ground and be supporting that. Sorry just can't. So sorry not sorry. The investigation will continue and additional charges may be forthcoming. Costco has been charged with making public, restricted personal information, witness tampering, threats in interstate communications, unauthorized access of a government computer, identity theft, second-degree burglary, and unlawful entry, and other charges may be forthcoming. He's going away for a long time. All right. When we get back, we'll have Kimberly Leonard, senior health policy reporter from the Washington Examiner. Stay there.
4: Hello everyone, I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, the very first day in Israel, when we're staying in Jerusalem, we go to the Mount of Olives. And it's there at the Mount of Olives we look out over the old city of Jerusalem. It's a spectacular sight. You've seen it in pictures before, but it's another thing to actually be there as we walk down from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane and we pray there. It's gonna be a wonderful time with brothers and sisters from around the country visiting the Holy Land, the land of Jesus. If you want information on this March 14th through the 22nd tour, just call us and we'll send you a brochure. Call 1-800-FAMILIES, F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option five, and leave us your name and your address and we'll mail you a brochure. Or if you want to simply go online at twholyland.com, everything's there, twholyland.com.
0: Hi, I'm Crawford-Loritz with a Legacy Moment. I have a confession. One day I got really frustrated. I was facing some important writing and preparation deadlines, and I allowed myself to get pulled into some stuff that just took time away from what I needed to do. For example, I went to a meeting that was supposed to last only an hour. Well, I should have known better. Several hours later, I was still sitting in that meeting, stuck. Finally, the meeting was over. I got in my car, and I said to myself, this is nuts. I'm shutting everything down until I finish what I need to do. I think we have all been there, haven't we? Distractions will delay if not stop you from doing what you're supposed to do. We need to think through our priorities and stick to them. It's one thing to sit down and outline your top six or seven things, but it's quite another to discipline yourself to stick by what you wrote on that paper. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 2-4, through four, we see a powerful illustration of a man who refused to be distracted, pulled away from what God had called them to do. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 2. The enemies of Nehemiah said to him, Come, let us meet together at Kephraim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messengers to me four times in this manner, And I answered them the same way. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Stay on the wall. Nothing is more important than what God has called you to do. Stay after it until
2: it's done. Crawford Loritz is Senior Pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries.
0: You can download episodes of Stacey of the Right from the podcast page on afr.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome
3: back to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it's so good to be able to talk to you. It's so good to be able to sit on and do some radio. So grateful to be here. Um, and I I love those, those uh, we have those moments with Crawford Loritz, and he's so wise. Man, he just shares the wisdom so quick and so fast. Um, so right now, I'd like you to just give you a few websites, urbanfamilytalk.com, afr.net, stacyontheright.com. And it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Kimberly Leonard, senior health policy reporter, from the Washington Examiner. Kimberly, thank you for joining us today.
5: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: Hi, it's, it's good to talk to you. I'm looking here at um, your piece, Healthcare-Driven Voters More Likely to Vote Democrat in Missouri and Nevada. Can you talk to us about that? Why?
5: Yeah, that's right. Um, Democrats all over the country, first of all, have really been pushing the healthcare message, particularly when it comes to Obamacare's protections for pre-existing illnesses. And so in states like Missouri and Nevada, which um, really could go either way, it seems that voters who are really focused on health care tend to be more likely to vote Democrat, is what the polling shows.
3: That's interesting because uh, Missouri has taken a decidedly uh, hard turn to the right in 2016, and Donald Trump won the state by 18, over 18 points. And then you also saw a, uh, just a down-ballot, tailwind that was phenomenal we only have one democrat elected statewide and as far as healthcare is concerned i agree about the pre-existing conditions but why aren't people telling the truth about that which is as long as you maintain some form of coverage even it's if it's a bare minimum bare bones policy then there are no pre-existing conditions
5: well um first of all the you know those who are going to be voting democrat those are the ones in which healthcare is the most important issue to them, that doesn't mean that all voters, you know, are driven by healthcare in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, voters who put issues like immigration or the economy at the top of their list are more likely to vote Republican in that uh, in the upcoming election. So when they, you know, it really comes down to you know who turns out in these higher numbers, and um, you know, overall these races are really neck and neck. I mean. Um, Senator McCaskill, who's uh, running against Josh Hawley, um, their percentage difference um, in this race is 47% to 44%. And then 44%. in Nevada, okay. um, between Rosen and Heller, it's 47% to 43%. So there's still a pretty tight margin in each state.
3: Now, I know there there were none of these kinds of um, accurate polling for 2016. Do you think the polling... Companies have updated their methodology so that they're more accurate this go-round? Because 2016 showed no chance that Donald Trump could win, and he swept Missouri. Um, and there were some, some other things that were just completely off in the polls. Have they, have they done any work in that area so that we can have a little more trust that this is such a huge issue for Missourians and Nevadans?
5: And well, they say they have, but, you know, there's been a lot going on in recent weeks, particularly with the Supreme Court. So that could really impact how people vote. Um, this particular poll was um, you know, put out by CNN, um, and you know, we were interested in it because of what it said about health care. And because, as I've reported before for the Washington Examiner, um, Democrats are really leaning in on you know, touting their efforts on health care, on defending Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, and uh, really focusing on the kind of pre-existing conditions issue. Um, only the election will tell whether that strategy plays off pays off. Mm.
3: Yeah, so when you talk about the, the Democrats running on, on health care, first of all, Obamacare, it did eliminate pre-existing conditions, but it has not offered every American who needs health insurance more than one option in the market in which they reside. How are Democrats able to reconcile the deficiencies of Obamacare, uh, or, or is it just a simple equation, we don't want to eliminate pre-existing conditions as, as a thing, and, and that's what they're do- just running on that?
5: Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that Democrats are doing, and it really depends by state, so I'm trying not to draw too many generalizations here, but sure, sure. Um, one of the things that is happening is that Democrats are using the term, you know, health care very broadly or pre-existing conditions very broadly. They're shying away from using terms like the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And so in that sense, they're really trying to make it seem as though the policies of the Affordable Care Act are affecting everyone in the. US when in reality it's a small percentage of people who actually purchase these plans. Um, the Obamacare plans are those offered on the exchanges where you know people can receive tax subsidies to help lower the cost of their insurance, but not everyone qualifies for the subsidies. I mean a lot of low and um, excuse me, a lot of middle income people are not eligible for subsidies at all. So every time you see increases in premiums, they end up um, having to kind of pay those additional premiums every single year. So for a lot of people, that's become unaffordable to them.
3: But when you talk about a small segment of Americans who are actually utilizing Obamacare or or are interested in the uh, pre-existing conditions, you know, kind of the the issue, how small of a percentage are we talking about here?
5: Yeah, well, first of all, everyone would say that they're interested in protecting pre-existing conditions, but a lot of people don't realize when you talk about that, well, you get health insurance from your employer, so that's included. So really, you have a small percentage of the population that applies to these, you know, ACA plans, and that's about so 3% that are buying it directly from the exchanges and then an additional probably 3% extra, so 6% total of the market who are buying these plans. That's not to mention people who are just uninsured, who either could qualify for pretty inexpensive health insurance on the exchanges, or don't qualify at all.
3: And then, isn't it? I thought I saw a, uh, a a notification from the White House that they'd actually signed an executive order or some kind of bill or something that made it possible for the existing plans. So that before Obamacare, there were these kind of cheap, bare bones plans that you could purchase. And they were for younger people. They were geared towards people who are very, very healthy, but they just want something for, uh, you know, preventative stuff and, you know, just basically small things, 300 a month or something like that for an individual. And those plans were basically wiped away by Obamacare. And so the White House kind of basically opened that back up so you can still get those if you want them. It didn't really impact you using Obamacare if you're already using that, but it just opened another little avenue up to get something is that something that Americans don't know about or what?
5: Well, I think that they will know about it just because the Trump administration, when they're putting the news out about open enrollment, which is the time when people can shop for plans, mm-hmm. they are going to you know, encourage people or agents who are selling news plans to also make people aware of the short term offerings. That's what mm-hmm. they're called. So oh, yeah. the short term plans um, are more limited in what they cover. But um, the argument that the Trump administration has made is, look, they might be more limited, but for people who are otherwise going uninsured, it's at least one other option that they can have. So that's one possible scenario. And then in certain states, the Trump administration has allowed the sale of what are called association health plans. And basically the way that that works is that it allows people who work in the same industry, so let's say farmers, to kind of band together and purchase health insurance um, in the same way that, you know, a larger employer would. And so those are kind of the two offerings that are out there that a lot of critics say, well, you'll, pull, you'll be pulling people out of Obamacare, that'll make those prices go up, et cetera, et cetera. And we're still waiting to see how everything plays out, because for people who are in the Obamacare marketplaces who are getting subsidies, um, many of them are paying nothing for premiums because the federal government is fully taking on those costs it's hard to imagine a scenario in which they would leave that kind of coverage in order to have one that's more bare bones.
3: So uh, just a kind of aside because I, I, I know about the uh, association plans. I thought that was a brilliant idea, not because it pulls people away from Obamacare, but because I think it's a better way of organizing yourself. I used to be a school board member, and even though the insurance was provided by the district for the teachers and uh, staff, administrators, et cetera, it was really an association plan where the school district created its own association and every employee was a member. And then the health insurer that they used quoted them based on the demographics of the sample. So it wasn't based on Missouri or the, the Midwest or, you know, teachers in general. It was literally based on how many people they had in each age group and the actuarial tables on the health of those types of groups. And so they were able to get a very favorable uh, you know, the, the rate that they were able to get was very favorable with low deductibles and things like that. And they found that there were some things that are universally true about teachers, and it was true about their sample size as well, which was very advantageous to the teachers. So I could see something similar happening with, let's say, you know, steelworkers or farmers or, you know, any group of people who d- they don't naturally have insurance through their employer, but if they banded together as a group, then they would be able to examine their 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 entire sample and then create a plan for them um but how how, i'm just wondering how it works out when you have obamacare and you're you don't have you know you have one choice within the the plan but you're fine with that because the government's paying for it i I don't see how that's better than what people had options to get before
5: well it's not the 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 problem is or the way that it's being described isn't there are several different ways that people experience these plans so you have people who receive subsidies. Those are individuals who make less than roughly $48,000 a year. So if you make slightly more than that, it's very difficult to afford premiums um, that keep going up every single year. They might cost, you know, $600 a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who are receiving premiums and who might have a pre-existing condition who were uninsurable before the Affordable Care Act, that is a very different experience from someone who is relatively healthy, who might have you know, student loans. Who might be putting, um, you know, payments on a house. Who might have, you know, children, um, and also then face these medical bills that are unaffordable to them because they fall just outside of that sort of income threshold. So there's really no singular experience with the law just because of the way that it was written and the way that it kind of puts different people into buckets um, according to, you know, not only you know their age but um, you know, what, where they live in the country and their income and what their, um, and so even though they've gotten rid of, you know, the health status, there are still other factors that weigh into the experience that people have.
1: Mm.
3: So how do you see this going? I know you're not like crystal ball, um, Kimberly, but you definitely have your finger on the pulse here, especially since you've been watching the polls. And, and I think one of the things that kind of makes it even harder to, to think what's going to happen is, as you mentioned before, this Kavanaugh, Uh, you know, the confirmation process, which is coming to a head. It looks like there'll be a vote on Saturday. Um, And it looks like some of the people who are players have already come out and said, like Claire McCaskill says she's a no, that the the sexual allegations don't have anything to do with her vote. And there's also the issue of Heidi Heitkamp. She's just come out recently and said she's a no, um, even though she's trailing her opponent by 10 points. And so you couple that with this issue. How does it look?
5: Well, one of the interesting kind of items tying all of this back to the Supreme Court is that there is currently a lawsuit that um, Republican officials have waged. Um, as probably you and your listeners know, there is um, the individual mandate in Obamacare um, goes to zero beginning in 2019. So the penalty associated with uninsured will go to zero. And what these Republican officials have said in their lawsuit is that they believe that because that part of the law has been... Cut off, that the rest of it should also fall away. So it's kind of another approach that's taken at trying to you know, chip away at the Affordable Care Act. Um, the Trump administration joined on to the lawsuit, but what they said was, well, instead of the whole law falling apart, we'd rather just have the pre-existing conditions protections go away. So this mm. is a case that, uh, you know, legal experts feel differently about as to whether it can hold any water or not. But Let's say it does move forward. This potentially could hit the Supreme Court again. It would obviously take years, and um, you know it depends on a lot of other circumstances, including how lower judges rule and um, what they, whether they decide to keep appealing or move forward, and things like that. But this is, you know, one area in which what's going on with health care is tied directly to um, the Supreme Court nominee. Mm.
3: Interesting. That that is that is something that is not being discussed as people are yelling and screaming about the allegations. They're not that you just connected something together, Kimberly, that I mean, it could be a boon for one side to campaign on. It could be a boon for both sides to campaign on. Actually, I could see where you could turn that into a hammer on either side of this issue Um, with a
5: lawsuit. Right. And then as we were talking about before in Missouri specifically, Missouri, um, Josh Hawley, who's the attorney general of the state, Mm -hmm. he's actually joined on to the lawsuit. So it's something that Senator McCaskill is using in her campaign ad saying, look, he wants to strike down protections for pre-existing conditions. So it's all playing out in the election.
3: So, Kimberly, I have another question because you do know about the Obamacare bill. Um, So there's a part in it that has a, a tax that goes on to your real estate transactions. So, if you make more than a certain amount on the sale of your home, let's say you've owned your home for 10 years or five years, or let's say you bought a fixer up or you fixed it up and you go to sell it. If you make more than a certain amount of money, there's an additional tax for Obamacare of like seven and a half percent that gets added, which is to me a travesty because real estate has nothing to do with healthcare. And if someone is flipping a house because they want to, fund their kids college education or use the money to start a business taking seven percent arbitrarily to apply to health care costs seems like something the Republicans would be against yet I never hear anyone talking about that also the Cadillac tax which has been delayed the implementation of that has been delayed what what's up with that like why aren't the Republicans against the tax in Obamacare why would they want to salvage the whole thing except the pre-existing conditions I don't get that
5: Well, it's actually interesting that you say that about the tax, because the House, as of a few weeks ago, before they decided to leave early to campaign, the House was working on a bill that would specifically delay or undo taxes in Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they had put a bill together, so it wouldn't have only been the Cadillac tax um, that would have received an even further delay, but the employer mandate, which fines employers who don't give health insurance to their employees, um, and you have to kind of—it's ha- for large for employers that are considered larger employers. So if they have fifty or more, or a hundred or more employees, um, and then it also would have gotten rid of a tax that's on tanning um, salons. Interestingly enough, so a that didn't end up moving forward. But I really—it <laughs> really had seemed like something that was going to move forward, and it was something that the House was talking about. They really wanted to get it done before. They um, went back to campaign, but they ended up running into other priorities, um, you know, including this opioid legislation package that had to be worked out, um, mm. and that also ended up passing the Senate. So, um, so essentially, I think it just came down to running out of time to work on that. But as yeah. far as the Cadillac tax goes, that's something that both Democrats and Republicans would either like to continue pushing back or... Or get rid do. of,
3: Yeah. Wow, Kimberly Leonard, senior health policy reporter at the Washington Examiner. Thank you so much for your time today and your expertise.
5: Thanks for having me.
3: All right, talk to you again soon. We'll be back with more and your calls, 866-963-2037. We'll be right back. What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach, Tony Dungy, with today's Uncommon Moment.
2: Woody Allen is quoted as saying, 80% of success in life is just showing up. Some of the best times with family are unplanned. The times when you're just present, when you show up. When I was coaching, too often the demands of my job stole time from my family. Sometimes it was unavoidable. Other times I simply scheduled too much of my time at work. But as time passed and the children got older, I changed. Do you need to change? Spend time with your family and loved ones for no reason at all but to be there. You'll witness miracles you might otherwise miss forever.
3: Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. People are moving as fast as their U-Hauls will carry them out of high tax, high regulation states like California, New York, and Illinois. Where are they headed? Into low or no personal property tax states like Tennessee, Texas, and Florida. So there is definitive proof that lower taxes are attractive to families juggling expenses. Why then do we see low-tax, no-tax states transform into high-tax, heavy-regulation states over time? Because the high-tax residents flee the consequences of their voting patterns. When they arrive in the prosperous low-tax states, they begin to vote in the very same high-taxes and heavy regulations that drove them from their previous location. Isn't that silly? I liken the behavior to economic locusts. After eating everything in sight, locusts move on to greener pastures. Economic locusts leave fiscal destruction in their wake. Remember this when you suddenly see calls for new taxes. If voters say yes, fiscal ruin will follow. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at stacyontheright.com.
4: Securing America.
1: The bizarre case of an airline worker who stole a passenger plane in Seattle has security experts and lawmakers concerned about
2: insider threats. The tragic incident at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport in August of this year is a somber reminder of the constant vigilance required to keep our skies safe.
1: Lauren Beyer, Vice President of Security and Facilitation for Airlines for America, recommended to a House subcommittee multiple layers of unpredictable security to help prevent threats from
2: within. We continue to believe that physical screening of employees is one of several critical elements that should be used in combination to enhance access control.
1: Richard Russell, a ground service agent for Horizon Air, took a turboprop plane on a shocking ride while air traffic control officers tried to coax him into a safe landing. Russell, who had passed all required background checks, was killed when the plane crashed about 30 miles away from the airport. In Washington, Rachel Sutherland, Fox News.
0: This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on
2: American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Tucker, it is pretty one-sided down here. That army of surrogates needs to get a lot bigger. They're going to take me on because it's very easy to defend Judge Kavanaugh. He has a stellar record on the bench. He has a long and distinguished history of public service. And he has undergone six background checks, Tucker six background checks and now somehow the fbi is supposed to turn up new information in just a few days to satisfy all the democrats yet as soon as we agreed to have a limited investigation by the fbi into current credible allegations of which i would say there are none but to humor them to give them a few days, they immediately started moving the goalposts, saying that we have to interview two dozen witnesses and has to take weeks and on and on and on. It's never going to end, Tucker. This is not about trying to get the facts or get the proof. It's about trying to stop Brett Kavanaugh from being confirmed to the Supreme Court. That all comes to an end this week, Tucker.
3: Mm, that's Senator Tom Cotton talking to Tucker Carlson about how this is over. This this is an obstruction tactic and. You know, you kind of have to give kudos to the other side of the aisle for throwing everything, including the kitchen sink and a couple of doggy bowls at this process. There's nothing they won't do. There's nothing they won't try. There's no rock that they won't turn over, dig whatever's underneath out and throw that as well. They're, they're flinging everything and anything. And it's kind of ridiculous. He went on to talk about the senators pouring over a yearbook like it's the Da Vinci Code. It's number six.
2: It is pretty amusing to see Democratic senators pouring over a high school yearbook as if it were the Da Vinci Code, Tucker, (laughs) and hypocritical of senators like Amy Klobuchar uh, who are condemning. Brett Kavanaugh for uncorroborated allegations from 36 years ago, yet Amy Klobuchar stands by Keith Ellison, who stands credibly accused of beating his ex-girlfriend just a few years ago with contemporaneous medical and police records. It just goes to show you that the Democrats are engaged in an orchestrated smear campaign to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh's character because they'll stop at nothing to prevent him from getting on the Supreme Court.
3: Now, I look... It's fine to work the process. It's fine to say, "Hey, you know, um, I gotta, I gotta do something" because I I believe differently than what's going on. It's not okay to tr- attempt to smear and destroy someone f- simply because they're on the other side of the political aisle. There have to be some standards. There has to be some. There has to be some place where you say to yourself, "Yeah, I want this, but I don't want it that bad. I'm interested in doing this, but I'm not interested in." doing it that badly yeah I don't think so yeah so hopefully we've seen the end of those tactics call lines are open at 866-963-2037 I want to uh go over this piece it's I mean I'm i was so surprised by it I read it this morning and I thought wow so it's written by um oh goodness I printed it out in print view and now I don't have the author's name on here um but it's at the NewYorkTimes.com, and you can find it there. It's it's called "For Once I'm Grateful for Trump," in the president, one big bully stands up to others. The writer talks about being grateful because Trump has not backed down in the face of slipperiness, hypocrisy, and dangerous standard setting deployed by opponents of Brett Kavanaugh. He says, "quote I'm grateful because he's a big fat hammer fending off a razor sharp dagger." He goes over some moments that have crystallized his view over the past few days and this is the part of the piece that I found so interesting he says he was talking to a friend and this, this this writer is a man and the friend that he's talking about is a man and he says I'd rather be accused of murder than of sexual assault he says when his friend said that it resonated because he feels the same way one can think of excuses for killing a man but there is no excuse for sexually assaulting a woman if that's true, so is this. Falsely accusing a person of sexual assault is nearly as despicable as the sexual assault itself because it inflicts psychic, familial, reputation and professional harms that can last a lifetime. So it's not anything to sneer at. It's not anything for like Democrats have heard them say just recently, boo hoo for Brett Kavanaugh. Mm, that sounds like somebody who's never experienced this assault. It's so funny how people can be so self-righteous about something until it's their turn. Then they expect everybody to have sympathy on them. The second moment is connected to the first boo-hoo Brett Kavanaugh's not a victim. That's the title of a column in the Los Angeles Times, which suggests that the possibility of Kavanaugh's innocence is infinitesimal. Wow. Yet here's a statistic for you. False allegations of rape, while relatively rare, are at least five times as common as false accusations of other types of crime. This is according to academic literature. So when did the possibility of innocence become for today's liberals something to wave off with an archly unfeeling boo-hoo? The third moment connected to the second, listening to Cory Booker explain on Tuesday that ultimately it doesn't matter if Cory Booker or if Kavanaugh is guilty or innocent. It doesn't matter if Kavanaugh is guilty or innocent because enough questions have been raised. It's time to move on to another candidate. And that's an openly uh, you know, brazen attempt to move the standard so that the, the goal that for the Democrats can be achieved, so that their goal can be accomplished. So it's, according to this author, he says it's sleight of hand in three acts. First, the one question that really matters is completely s- tossed aside. Is he guilty? The secondary set of questions are wholly the result of the question you've decided to ignore and call for another candidate because it will push confirmation hearings beyond the midterm. The fourth moment was him watching Julie Swetnick, who has accused Brett Kavanaugh of these rape gangs, changing the details of what exactly happened while she was talking in an interview with NBC News. Now, if you don't watch NBC, you probably missed this, but Julie Swetnick completely obliterated her own credibility. It's, it's really nice when your enemy does that for you, when you don't have to lift a finger and they, they completely destroy their own case. Her claims border on the preposterous. Not only are they uncorroborated, but they're just crazy. Now, you got uncorroborated plus uncorroborated plus largely uncorroborated. Lots of questions, no evidence, duplication of hearsay. In other words, you have a big fat ball of slander with a side of nothing on it. The fifth moment, he says, is when he read about a 1985 bar fight at Yale University in which Kavanaugh was throwing ice. The sixth moment was listening to Richard Blumenthal lecture Kavanaugh on the legal concept of falsus in omnibus, which is false in one thing, false in everything. The same senator who lied for years about his military service. He lied for years, stolen valor. It's one thing to say you've been in the military. It's another thing to say you did all kinds of fantastic feats of glory that you did not do. And to, do, to say those things for years and years and years until you're found out and then accuse other people of lying. How about you just crawl back into your liar hole and don't, don't come back out accusing anybody of anything? He shouldn't even be serving in the Senate right now. And then here's, for me, the cake taker. After reading his piece, fantastic. Do you remember when... Barack Obama was running for office, and people went to his book, Dreams of My Father, and they read about how he used to do cocaine and then go to class. He used to get up in the morning and drink a beer and then go to class, about how he was just, he he smoked marijuana, um, he was sexually promiscuous, um, he even considered dating women based on their ethnic background. For the benefit to himself, in other words, not because he liked them, but because he, he he termed it in his own words that dating someone who was white was a status symbol and it could help him career wise. Ultimately, he decided to marry a black woman because he needed that validation because he's he's of mixed race, you know, origin. But. It, don't those statements by someone hit writings before he knew he would be the president? Aren't those indicative of a kind of, um, it's like a kind of calculating malice towards other people, that other people are tools to serve your own ends? Isn't that much more indicative of character when considering who should be the president of the United States than whether or not someone was in a bar fight in 1985? Even if the bar fight happened, and perhaps it did, it's a college student who eventually went on after graduating from Yale to go on to law school and to serve honorably at every place he's ever worked. He didn't do cocaine. He didn't do drugs. He drank a lot of beer in high school and college. He and his friends were a raucous band of, you know, really, they sound like they, they were the cool kids. They had all the fun. And they had a mix of wild abandon around beer and going to games and going to concerts mixed in with a crazy amount of dedication and focus to their schoolwork and sexual abstinence. I mean, isn't that an interesting, his, his childhood and uh, young adulthood would make a fantastic Hollywood movie. It'll never get made because in Hollywood you need to be sexually promiscuous and be proud of it. You need to act like an animal in order for it to be a good movie. But the story of Kavanaugh sounds much more fascinating to me because it's the balance of the things that, that he's, openly admitted were the way that he lived. He, they had the most fun they could have. He also worked as hard as he possibly could work and seemed singularly focused on having all of that fun before he got married. So he could then go on to be kind of the, some of the most boring people, the ones who only go to baseball games obsessively, you know, put baseball games on credit cards, organize trips to, uh, you know, baseball games across the country and all that kind of stuff. The most fun he had was going to baseball games. And coaching little, uh, ba- little league basketball, baseball, et cetera, like that. But cocaine use, cocaine's an illegal drug by a man who wanted to be the president, that just made Barack Obama cool. Admitting that he dated white women because it might be beneficial to his career, that just made him cool. Do you see that double standard? So I'm, I'm over it. Uh. I don't feel like this is something that we need to if if you didn't care with Obama, you know where I'm going with this. Then why do you care with Kavanaugh? If it was cool for Obama to do illegal drugs and drink beer for breakfast before he went to school in college, why is it a problem for Brett Kavanaugh to have drunk on the weekends and, you know, sometimes even during the week in the evenings and and still graduated from school you know, well, he did a good job. He graduated with with good grades. How's, how's, how is one so dastardly and the other one's just fine? And I'm not condoning drinking to excess, drinking at all, really. I'm, I'm not a drinker. I have drank wine in the past. I recently gave it up, not because I had problems or because there was anything that anyone told me I had to do. I just felt like, you know what, this isn't adding anything to me. And so I just stopped drinking wine. I was a you know, one glass of wine on the weekend, or a glass of wine when I was out with girlfriends, type thing. Just gave it up. Not to be self righteous or to be special. Just decided it wasn't doing anything for me. So I've been on both sides of that. I actually my favorite mixed drink is a White Russian. I love drinking those little things, but I've I've you know I just don't drink them anymore. It's I I just don't see where if you're on either side, whether you're a teetotal or you're a, a recreational drinker. I don't see how him drinking beer in high school and college has anything to do, any bearing whatsoever on his performance now or his performance during the 307 opinions he's authored. How can it possibly have an impact when he's not an alcoholic now? No one has alleged that he was an alcoholic back then either. He's not been admitted to any 12-step programs. It just all rings of the stink of hypocrisy. The stench of people who, rather than admit, we just don't want him because he might reverse Roe v. Wade. And that has been admitted. But, I mean, just stop making up other reasons and just dig your heels in and say that's all it's about for us. We want abortion on demand. We want child sacrifice. We want kids to be able to be aborted up to the age of two. That's a Planned Parenthood position, not mine. We want people to be able to have a baby, take it home, and then bring it back to the hospital and say, I don't want this baby anymore. Kill it. That is the position of some of the people who work at Planned Parenthood. They have said so in conferences down in Florida. They have actually discussed killing children who've already been born and named and given, uh, you know, identification papers that have gone on to the federal government. They've said up to the age of two, a mom should be able to decide this just isn't working out for me. And. That is where they hope to take abortion in this country, not just a constitutional right to kill unborn kids, but, hi, up to two, that's not really a kid unless the mom says it's a kid. That's what they should be saying when they're, this is what we're fighting for. We haven't gone far enough. Abortion isn't enough for us. We don't just need to be able to abort them while they're unborn. We don't just want to take their body parts and sell them on the, the open market to the highest bidder for research and development and grafting onto mice. I mean, if you told me 15 years ago that that would be the state of what's going on in America, I would have said you are from the twilight zone. Yet here we are. Democrats fighting tooth and nail over the right to advance abortion and keep it constitutionally protected because removing the constitutional protections doesn't make it illegal in this country. It's the fact that they want the legitimacy of the constitutional, hey, this is a right. They want that. They want the funding to remain intact because then no one can be innocent of the sin of abortion. So I point you back to the Old Testament, what happened in the book of Joshua to well healed, strong, fortified, well-populated societies that practiced ritual child sacrifice at some point God was no longer mocked and he poured out his wrath on them is that what we want don't listen to the constant chattering of their lips look at their actions look what they're advocating for All right that's the music hey We'll see you from the heartland. If you're leaving us, God bless. If you're sticking around, you have news and information from onenewsnow.com up next.